0: We were gathered here today in the name of Christ. I had a couple of thoughts that came through my mind as I saw the family came in, come in. And the first one was, what a huge family! And my next thought was, did this man have influence? And I. I looked at all of you, and it was, so, it was obvious. Look at the influence that he had. Look at the people. And I know some of you, and I know the direction in life you're going. So that confirms to me as well that Uncle Bud had influence. And I believe that influence is going to continue on. Isn't that a evidence of a godly man when influence continues on after death. Yesterday afternoon, I opened Uncle Bud's Bible and I just flipped it open and this is the first thing I read, Acts 20 verse 36. Speaking of Paul here, and when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake that they should see his face no more. And I thought of you. My prayer for you today as a family is that this day would be sweet to you. You know, there is a part of pain that is bitter. But there is also a part of pain that is sweet. And you wouldn't want to miss this day. You don't want to block this day out. You want to remember all the events of this day. And my prayer for you is that it would be a sweet memory and experience today. I don't have many personal memories of Uncle Bud. But I just want to share a couple of things that stand out to me that I know about him and that I heard about him. I appreciated what Rich shared He was cheerful, he was welcoming, he reminded me of grandpa, he was funny, and he loved to tell stories, and he liked to tease, he was a teaser. I heard something from my mother yesterday that I wonder if those of you here in the front row know about this. But when Bud was a little boy, he would try to say things to his mother to get her to get a rise out of her. And so he would get close enough within her earshot and say things like, bye, cracky. And grandma would raise her eyes and mama said if she'd have been close enough, she probably would have given him a swat, but he stayed just far enough away. And here's one thing I do have, as far as being teasing, that I remember, is that sometimes the phone would ring. This is way back when I still lived at home, and the phone would ring and it was Uncle Bud. And Mama would answer the phone, and, and later she would tell me about their exchange, and he would say, Is the old man home? He knew she didn't like that term. And Mama would say, I don't have an old man. That was Bud. The thing that I would like to focus on today about him that I think is really the most valuable and the most outstanding is how faithful he was. As far as serving the Lord and that none of his life, as far as I know, disagreed with his testimony. You see, we can say things out of our mouth and then if my life disagrees with it, then it creates a confusion. As far as I know, all the rest of Bud's life lined up with his testimony. And that he lived 92 years, you know, in the school of hard knocks, in real life. You know, he wasn't just sitting in the classroom. He was in real life and lived faithfully for 92 years. What a testimony. That is so encouraging to me. You know, this is possible to do this in these days. The world is becoming darker and darker. The world is not becoming more godly and more Christ-like but it is possible to live godly in ups and downs for 92 years and be faithful by the grace of God. Today I would like for a message, I would like to look at an ingredient in 1 Peter chapter one, that we must possess if we too We'll live faithfully and arrive safely at the end. I call it the mentality of a stranger. And I believe Uncle Bud possessed this mentality. <clears throat> First Peter chapter one, verse one says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers. Is that who you are today? Scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. So as I look at these I look at this setting here from what I understand, there were Jews who had been deported from their homeland, they had lost their identity, and were scattered across the Roman world, and they never made it back home. And so Peter addresses them as strangers. They were out of step with the culture that they were living in. You know what? I believe that as you know, you and I, we grew up in this country and we, many of you grew up in this community, and yet in a sense, that is the, the identity we need to maintain if we want to arrive safely at the end, and that is we are out of step with the culture. The NIV words it this way, to God's elect strangers in the world. So these people here, in verse 1, we see what they had lost. But in verse 2 and on, we see what they gain. Verse 2 says, "...elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ." So there's Father, Spirit, and Son in verse 2. And then he says, "...to those of you that are elect, these are all the things that God has done for you to make it possible for you to be unstained in the world. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. In these next several verses, we see just an ongoing list of all the things that God has done. And you and I can... can, uh, This list applies to you and me as well. All the things that God has done so that you can arrive safely and faithfully in the end. So just, I want you to, many of you probably don't have your Bibles today, but you're listening to me read. So just listen for things that God has done for you, for the believer, to equip you to go through, you know, I I read a quote by, um, let's see, C.S. Lewis. He said something like this. Something about the pain that we go through. That God who foresaw your tribulation, he said, has specially armed you to go through it. Not without pain, but without stain. And so that's what we're looking at here is this is what God has armed you with to go through the world. The ups and downs, the sorrows, the gains, the losses, the hurts without stain. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again, has birthed us in Christ Jesus, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this is our birthing, verse 3, and verse 4, to an inheritance. So here's the beginning and here's the end, verse 4. To an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. It's sitting up there, it's on the shelf, ready for you to unwrap. God has made all provision for you to be birthed into the kingdom of God and to then receive the inheritance at the end. And God has done something else for you in verse 5. Who, talking about you, you strangers, you bunch of strangers out here, who are kept, that word kept, that's such a powerful word. You are kept by the power of God. He birthed you. He, he's holding that inheritance for you. It's, it's reserved for you. And in the meantime, you are kept by the power of God. Through faith unto salvation. And here it is. Unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I think in this passage here, it refers three different times to the appearing of Jesus Christ. Verse 7 says that, at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Verse 13 says, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the verse you just read, just 5, unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I think, for the most part, what he's referring to here is, is when Christ returns, when it's all over. But another sense is when it's all over for you. Ready to be revealed in the last time. So there is what verses 1 to 5 is all that God has done for you. How should you respond? How should you feel about that? Verse 6. Is this described your response to all this? Verse 6. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. He's not ignoring the trials. He's not ignoring the tears and the burdens and the losses. And so in a sense, you can rejoice while you're weeping. Verse 8 says, Whom having not seen, talking about Jesus Christ, you haven't seen him. You haven't seen him. Whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. You can have that experience. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. Because of the circumstances outside of you? No. Because of the circumstances inside of you. And those things help us then when we go through those manifold temptations that we read about in verse six. Now what I like about the passage is it just beautifully fits together. All the things that God does things we could never do so that your salvation will be secure at the appearing of Jesus Christ, at the revelation of Jesus Christ in the last time. But it's very clear also there is something that you must do. It's like a a little trip lever that you need to push to to open up the valves that all these blessings can be poured out upon you all this equipment can be poured out upon you so that the keeping of God can can surround you. And what is that? Verse 5 said that who are kept by the power of God through faith. Whose faith is that? That's you and me. It's your faith that is the the trip lever that if it's a living faith, it's a real faith and a valid faith, it will release all of these things from the Lord so that you can go to life and through life faithfully all the way unto the end. Verse 9 says, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. God knows that if we're all up to him, you know, the Bible says it's not God's will that any should perish. If it were all up to him, all of us would be in glory. That's what his will is. But we know that not, not everyone will be there. In fact, I would say it's quite likely that some of you that are here today, it could be me, will not be there. It's quite possible that in a, in a gathering this large, there will be some of you, or it could be me, that will not be there. God knows what he brings to the table is perfect and it will work perfectly, it will, it will, it will kick in perfectly and, and, and bring you safely to your destination. But he knows that what you bring to the table may not work. It may not be real, it may not be valid. Your faith. And so he has, in his love, in his divine providence, has arranged for something to, to make so that your faith will be valid at the appearing of Jesus Christ. That's found in verse seven, that the trial of your faith. That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold. There is nothing more precious in life than your faith. You, you, You can't trade in your faith for anything else. You dare not. much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire. So we would cut out the middle of the verse and put the front and the back together. It would say this, that the trial of your faith might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. That's God's highest concern. And so if you have to go through some trials, if he has to expose some of your flesh, that's not going to look pretty on the day of, of the appearing of Christ. He will do it now in this life for the perfecting you. He's going to bring you a trial to peel away more of the flesh. He's going to prune off the top of the branch. So that you, so that your faith will be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. You know, God's pruning does not feel good, does it? It doesn't feel good to me. but he has a higher concern than your comfortability and that is when you come to the end your faith which you brought to the table is just shining like a star you know there is Different kinds of faith. There is dead faith. You see, it's... Sometimes, I've talked to people and they talk about faith and what they believe. And and it's like what what the discussion is about is, is this faith or isn't it faith? And we say, yeah, it's faith. But that's actually the wrong question. The question is, is it living or is it dead? (laughs) You know, if there would be a butterfly that would fly in this room this morning. Or if it would be laying down here in the ground and we would discuss, is that a butterfly or is that a, you know, is that a worm or is that a butterfly or is that a, a mouse? What is that? And we'd all say, yeah, it's a butterfly. It's the wrong question. It's dead. Is it living or is it dead? And that's the right question to ask about our faith. Because there is such a thing as a faith that's real. Yes, it's real, but it's dead. Scripture says faith without works is dead. It is faith. It's just not valid faith. So there's dead faith. There's a demonic faith. The devils also believe and tremble. But that's not a saving faith. You know, sometimes it seems the devils are more quick to acknowledge Jesus than people. They have no problem believing, but it's not a saving faith. So there's dead faith, there's demonic faith, and then there's dynamic faith. (laughs) What is the mentality of a stranger? I would like to notice three ingredients that I find in verses 13 down to 17. Peter explained all these things in the first part of the chapter. And then he gives us something to do about it, do about the things that he explained. In verse 13, he says, Wherefore, so now, now that you understand all this, now you bunch of strangers, now that you get all this, there is something for you to do. And here it is in verse 13 Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the first ingredient that I... I'm putting three ingredients together and, and in the end... So we cook them up and we come up with the mentality of a stranger. Here's the first ingredient in this recipe. and It's, it's the phrase hope to the end found in verse 13. Another translation says set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. And so the picture that I get out of this is someone who comes to faith. And instead of choosing the path, so to speak, he chooses the end. He he at the beginning of the journey, he sets his hope on the end. Set your hope fully on the grace uh He doesn't say the grace that you're going to have right at this moment when we get grace right at this moment. But what he says is, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. So you put your hope out there at the end. That's the the marker. When Jesus Christ is revealed, and if it costs me something in the present, if I need to be a stranger in the culture if I need to say no, if I can't indulge all the things that I wish that I could do, my, my, present, my present experience is ordered by the, 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 the point that I set out there, setting my hope to the end on the grace given when Jesus Christ is revealed. It's basically living every day of my life in light of what happens the moment that I die, I govern, it's a governor. <laughs> we drive these little golf carts around work, and the mechanic says, "Now, you know, we're going to set the governor on these things. The speed limit is 15 miles an hour around the complex here. Don't go adjusting the governor." This set—he's—he's he's telling us. See, we have a choice about this. Set your hope. Set your hope out there at that end, and it will govern your whole life. See, so often we're, what we're setting our hope on is in the present, and my comfortability in the present, and what I, and what I want in the present. I believe this is this part of the mentality of a stranger. Do we have to be odd so that we can be a Christian? Do we got to be, you know, maybe if I'd walk around in a burlap bag, I'd feel strange enough so that I would, you know, think about Jesus enough and go to heaven. And that's not what this is talking about. But I do believe that it will transform our lives when we set that point out there to the end. It governs everything. And so while the rest of the world is accumulating wealth, we're saying, man, Jesus said send it on ahead. Don't store it up here, send it on to heaven. Hey, you're really weird if you do that. Wow, it's the governor. Does Does your faith, the way you set your hope out there on the end, does it make you seem like a stranger to the culture around you? Or is the truth, is the truth that you're hardly any different from the rest of the culture. I think this ingredient here in verse 13 can't help, it can't not set us apart in our priorities, the choices of our time, what we think about How can it not change us? Verse 14. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. You know, he's saying you used to do all that stuff because you didn't know any better. It is unheard of. It is unthinkable to now do that stuff knowing better. In verse 15, it goes on and says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye. You know what a very simple recipe is for, for arriving safely at, at the end? You know everything Jesus did? You do that. You do that. You just copycat him. You know, didn't, by the way, here's a little rabbit trail. Didn't Jesus do that, set that hope in the end? Remember that verse that says, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame? He looked beyond. He looked to the end and was set down in the right hand of the majesty on high. He's got a bunch of chairs set out there, waiting for you and me to sit down with him. So be ye holy. In all manner of conversation, that just means, that does mean the way you talk. But what it really means is everything. You know, sometimes I think we shouldn't even say, how's it going in your Christian life, brother? We should say, how's it going in life? Because if you're a Christian, all of your life should be Christian. You should be Christian in your leisure time. You should be Christian in your hobbies. Maybe you shouldn't have any. Maybe you should get more hobbies for doing the things of God. And, you're, and the things that interest you and the things you talk about in all of your conversation, it should be holy and set apart. Because you are a stranger. So that's the second ingredient, by the way. Be holy in all of your conversation. In the way you drive, in the way you eat, in the way you dress, in the way you spend, and how you work, and how you speak, how you speak about others. How you respond to being sinned against, to being taken advantage of, to being overlooked. Nothing is exempt. You know, Jesus isn't here, but you are here, and you're wearing his name. So we are saying, Jesus isn't here but i'm representing him in his absence so if you watch listen to the way that i speak and you watch the way that i spend and you watch how much i talk about myself or not talk about myself i'm showing you how jesus himself would do it if he were here be holy In all manner of conversation. So that's number two ingredient. Number one ingredient was hope to the end, verse 13, verse 15, and 16. Be holy. And then here's the last ingredient in verse 17. And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, you see, he will judge. You know, the, the caretaker in John 15, when he looked at the when he when the caretaker came into the garden, did he first look at you, the branch, and pull down through the leaves and get down to the bottom and say, I wonder if he's connected to the vine? Let's check out his faith. <laughs> let's let's look and see. Are you really connected? And then and then breathe a sigh of relief and say, Oh, oh yeah, he's he's in. He's in the vine. Well, I'm so glad to see that. You know, he doesn't look for that first. He actually looks out at the end of the branch and says, Man, I, I really need some fruit. I really, I'm looking for fruit. That's, what he, that's the first thing he looked for. If you read that chapter, that's the first thing that's emphasized. He's looking for fruit. And so God will inspect my faith by examining my fruit. If you call on a father who without respect of persons, without respect, you know, we are respectful of persons sometimes. We assume and we, we give credit where we maybe shouldn't give credit. Not our Father, without respect of persons, judgeth according to every man's work. And so here's the, last, the third ingredient of the mentality of a stranger. At the last part of this verse, it says, Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. 92 years. 50 years. You know that the time, however much time you have, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. You know, that's, that doesn't sound popular at all. It almost doesn't sound biblical, except it's in the Bible. In fear? That word fear comes from the Greek word phobos, where we get the, 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 the word or the, the idea of phobia. It means like a terror, or it can mean that. A dread. It can also mean a reverential fear. So what does that mean? I'm not sure I can define that all. I'll just give you a few of my thoughts. I'd like to hear yours. But I just think this, this mentality. You know, I work in a trailer factory. And sometimes there's a wedding or a funeral. And I go to work for three hours and then I go into the restroom and I change my clothes and I put on clothes like this. You know what I do when I walk out of the bathroom? There's so much dust and dirt that I before that I just walked around and brushed and laid on the floor. It didn't matter. But once I've got my good clothes on, I go like this. And I still, I still get out of the bathroom and there's dust on my coat. I, I get that idea. This is, this is how we're to walk in this world. Past the time of your sojourning here in fear. You should be afraid of being stained by the world. You should be afraid of being deceived by, the, by the, all the things the devil's putting on his hook and throwing out there for you. Does he have temptations for you? I know that he does. And he knows that different bait works with different folks. He's going to tempt some of you with lust. Some of you with accumulation. Some of you with fear and doubt. Some of you with indifference and apathy. And he's throwing out that hook. And this scripture is telling us, be very afraid of taking those hooks. Most importantly, I think, in regard to this fear, is that fear God. Jesus said, Don't fear a man that can can kill the body, and after that, there's nothing they can do. But I'll tell you who you should fear fear the one who, after the body is dead, has the authority to cast you into hell. Fear God. Is that a governor? (laughs) Is that a good governor? Be afraid of losing your faith, losing your focus. Be afraid of coming to the end and finding out, as D.O. Moody, Moody said this, maybe some of you have heard this before. Our greatest fear should not be a failure, but, as, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. And Sometimes I think that's what some Christians are doing. Am I doing that? Oh, I'm very busy. I'm very active building my business or, or involved in my something. You know, God is up there saying, man. It's just like the, the argument about the Super Bowl or some of these ball games and people ask the question, do you think God cares who wins the ball game? I don't think he does. It's like, go ahead and play your little game. You know, it's irrelevant to me. Be afraid of succeeding in something that doesn't really matter. Be afraid of being involved in something that matters to you that is irrelevant to God. Hope to the end, be holy, pass the time of your sojourning in fear. That's the mentality of a stranger. A stranger is not just a description It's a calling. And if you accept this calling, it will be a governor that will direct your whole life and lead you unto the right end. I've set my hope. I've ordered my whole life on the appearing of Jesus Christ. I am a stranger and I'm just passing through. How should we pass the time? Peter gives us the formula, hope in holiness, sojourn in fear. I'd like to close with a little story. I believe it's a true story. Henry Morrison was a missionary, had served over 40 years in Africa And he had some health issues, and he decided it was time to return to the States. And so he was on an ocean liner, and he was returning into the harbor in New York. And as the ship sailed into the harbor, there were bands playing, and people cheering, and banners waving that said, Welcome home! Henry didn't realize that on that same ship was President Theodore Roosevelt, who had been on a two-week hunting excursion to Africa, and was also returning home. And all the cheers and the welcomes home were for him. As Henry realized what was going on, He began to struggle with the fact that not one person had come to welcome him home. And all the people left and all the bands left and Henry walked to his motel room alone. He began to struggle. In his mind, it is said that he thought something like this. Why, Lord? Here I've served you faithfully for 40 years and not one person has come. To welcome me home. And at that moment. In a still small voice. God spoke to Henry's heart. And he said. But Henry. You're not home yet. May we celebrate today. In the midst of our tears. That another faithful saint. Has made it safely home. I think someone was there to say welcome home. May God be praised.